My name is Jacqueline Beck. I'm a PhD student at UCI. I study Alzheimer's disease. Specifically, there's a type of immune cell in your brain called a microglia. And a lot of recent research has suggested that microglia play a huge role in the development of Alzheimer's disease, whether they cause it or just fail to prevent it. So I study microglia and I'm trying to study what happens as they age in the human body. Um, I hope that my work helps eventually develop drugs to treat Alzheimer's. Um, the most ideal would be something like a preventative medicine that you could take once you reach middle age. And uh, hopefully that would prevent or kind of slow down Alzheimer's disease. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Howdy folks, welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Joining me today, we have Jacqueline, who is a PhD student in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior, studying Alzheimer's disease and microglia. Microglia, right? Microglia. Yes. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, we know each other because we're both part of the writing team for the Lowdown on Science. Um, again, you interview who you know. I've been interviewing a lot of people who came from Lowdown on Science, which is why I say that. But yeah, thank you for being on the show. Okay, so could you let's start off as we always do. Could you tell us about the the specifics of the work that you do? Um, sure. So uh, basically, aging is the biggest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Young people don't get this disease. People in their 70s or 80s get this disease. Um, but the problem is that your brain is really good at covering up problems. So the problem that starts off Alzheimer's actually starts about maybe 15 years before you see memory issues. Um, but your brain is so good at compensating for this that you don't actually know what's going on until 15 years later. So this makes this disease really hard to study because you can't just look at a person and know they have this disease. Um, so one of the things that we do in the lab is try and study this disease with mice. Um, but a huge issue with mice is they only live for two years. They don't live for, you know, 70 or 80 years. So if you really want to study human aging, um, you're kind of out of luck with mice. Uh, so one of the pieces of my work is focused on how can we make this model better so that we can look at aging. So uh, my PI and several other grad students have basically created this method where you can put um, human microglia into a mouse brain and they're actually perfectly happy living in there. And what that allows us to do is actually study human microglia, but in a more or less natural brain environment. Um, but there's a catch to these in that these were made from stem cells, which were created from human skin cells. So basically, you take these skin cells and you reprogram them 
into stem cells and then reprogram again into microglia. And when you do this, you're basically making them like babies again. Um, so the microglia that we put in the mouse brains end up looking like they come from infants instead of an 80-year-old person. So now we're getting into my project. I'm trying to make these microglia look old. Um, and the way we are going about this is by genetically modifying them. Um, there's a really important process in each cell, and that is repairing damage to your DNA, which is very important for coding everything that your body needs to function. So if it gets damaged, it needs to get fixed so that your cell can still function. Um, and what happens as we age is this damage kind of piles up and gets fixed but not in a good way. Kind of like if you have like a mechanic come and fix something, but they take the cheap route and they don't really fix it and then it just kind of compounds itself. Um, that's basically what happens to our cells as we age. So I am doing some genetic knockouts to basically break this process of repair so that they don't fix it well. And the thought is that these cells will then age very rapidly as if they had been alive for 80 years, but instead they're only alive for a couple of months. Um, and then I'm going to see what this uh, modification does um, and make sure that it looks like an old person's cells inside the mouse and how that affects Alzheimer's. Oh, that sounds pretty awesome. So a few questions for you. Uh, so you mentioned first that the disease begins to manifest itself 15 years before we even see any of the effects. Yeah. So what actually happens in the body? So there is a protein that we actually need. It's called amyloid beta. Um, and this protein in the normal process is used by your cells and then they chop it up when they're done with it and it's basically recycled. Um, but what seems to happen as we age is that they don't get chopped up and recycled. Instead, they kind of aggregate into plaques that just kind of sit within, you know, all your brain cells and these become toxic and they start to kill your brain cells. Um, and something about the microglia interacting with these plaques or failing to is um, causing them to build up instead of getting recycled. And that's kind of what leads to Alzheimer's. So does the aging process also affect the microglia's ability to clean out those plaques? Yeah. So um, remember that as they kind of build up this damage, certain things in the DNA no longer code for what you want them to code for. So they're missing some essential functions. So something is happening as we age that the microglia just don't function as well anymore. Um, and there's a lot of kind of conflicting like theories about this because they're so hard to study in the aging human brain. Um, but basically they think that these microglia are getting kind of just constantly angry and are attacking the plaques, but aren't able to digest them. So it's becoming even more toxic to your neurons. Um, so that's kind of one of the current theories right now. So then as cells age, they start losing bits of their genetic data. Is that the only thing that happens with aging, or does your body begin to express different express things differently uh, just because it's getting older, or is it just purely due to the damage that gets accumulated over time? 
Okay, so as you age, there are processes in the cell that kind of slow down how fast they grow and divide. Um, and that's kind of why like when you're older, um, your skin gets a lot thinner and you get wrinkles is because some of that stuff is just not replenishing itself. Um, so those processes have a little bit to do with damage and a little bit to do with uh, limits on how many times a cell can divide before it, your body considers it no longer good. Um, it's kind of your body's way of protecting itself from, uh, of some things, cancer. So Alzheimer's is a problem that happens with age, and then you, you're making, you're putting microglia from stents, human microglia into mice brains. Yes. It's pretty is, crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, oh man, that sounds like mad science. Yeah. It's kind of awesome. It's pretty mad science-y, and... I love it. Like, <laughs> but the problem was they're they're like young, like yeah. babies. Yeah. Like, so how do you? Yeah, could you tell us about your work then? How do you artificially age baby stem cells? Um. So we're we're hoping, and we're still in the process of validating this. So it is entirely possible that this won't work, but we have good reason to think it will, based on some previous studies. Um. But basically, with this genetic knockout, um. They're oh, actually, could you explain what knockout is? Oh, first? yes. Sorry. So basically, um, your cells have all of the DNA that you need to function. Um, and we have a method of editing the DNA, which basically we go in there and we um, there's a specific gene called ERCC1. And we go in there and we know what that gene looks like. So we target that specific gene. And this method basically cuts that gene in half, and then your cell repairs it badly. So now the gene no longer works. Um, so when it tries to make this protein, the protein doesn't actually do anything, so they can't repair the damage using that protein anymore. Does I that make sense? I got a ton of side questions about that. <laughs> um, but we'll get to, Okay, so I'll let you finish off. Yeah. How, do, how you age the mice, and I'll get to those side questions. Yeah, um, so there are people who actually have mutations in this gene and they age rapidly um, and they also get dementia because it's very um, prominently used in the brain. Um, so we kind of already know that this works in people, um, but we're just trying to get it to work in, in one type of cell. Um, and then the hope is that by growing up in a mouse brain, they're still in a brain, so they still feel like they're at home. Um, but it allows us to look at actual human cells without experimenting on people, which is the, the the big draw here. Yeah. And you said they they feel like at home. Is there any is that hundred percent true or are there any sorts of weirdness that happens because it's in a foreign brain, I guess? Um, so we have done a lot of work looking at like how the cells behave and what they look like, like what they physically look like, um, what they're doing in the brain, and they seem perfectly happy in the mouse brain, and they they don't seem to have any issues with like growing or performing their jobs. Um, these are immune cells, so if you take them out of the brain and you put them in a dish to look at them, they get angry because they're no longer in their native environment. Uh, so that's kind of why we want to actually study them in the brain, um, is because as soon as you move them out of a brain, they start to act differently. So they're just happy to be in a brain. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So yeah, we think the mouse brain is a good enough uh, analog for a human brain that they're pretty much okay. Yeah. 
Do you suspect this might be a problem if you put it in uh, some other kind of brain? Um, so I would think that as you kind of go up the chain of like more advanced, say advanced in double quotes, um, animals, like if you were to put it in, for example, like a pig brain, um, that would probably be a little bit closer to like a human brain than a mouse brain. Um, mouse brains are pretty simple. They don't even have folds in them. They're just, then they're pretty tiny. So uh, going back to the thing about the knockouts. Yeah. Um, when I hear when I heard the word knockout, it seemed like you guys were uh, doing something to change um, so that that gene isn't being expressed. That's yes. what I thought was happening. Yes, but it's you're actually going out and physically knocking out parts of that gene. Yeah, like that. We basically break the DNA for that gene um, so that it just no longer can make a protein anymore. Um, so the rest of their genes are still intact and they still function normally, except for that one. Uh, gene and then uh, since we've altered their DNA when they replicate all of their daughter cells also have this mutation too so then we have a whole population of cells with the same um, modification so is there any way to stop that protein production altogether or I guess what would happen if you just completely edited that gene out why does it have to be mutated I guess Um, I mean we are effectively editing it out um by mutating it um it will it will try and make the protein but the protein will be kind of misformed and won't be able to do its job um you do have to be careful when you're editing genes because you might do something that has effects that you don't know about um because there's a lot of there's a lot of things before and after the gene that kind of tell you when to make the gene and how often and how much you should make and if you accidentally cut up those or you get a nearby gene that you don't want it's it's not um sometimes it's not very precise where you cut although you do your best um but you can have effects that you didn't expect so you you want to do as little as possible could you, could you tell us a little bit more about kind of the, the specifics of how you're aging these cells? Um, I mean, basically with this knockout, uh, the thought is that we just kind of let them grow, but they're not repairing their damage, so they're becoming dysfunctional a lot faster. Um, so I'm right now doing some experiments with them growing in the mice, and I'm hoping that after being in the mice for two months that they'll look a lot more like they came from an adult. Um, and maybe that will let us um, do experiments on, on mice in the short lifespan of mice that are more applicable to an 80-year-old person. Do you think this sort of technique could be used to age other kinds of cells as well? I imagine that might be useful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Maybe not this particular gene. Um, microglia are the ones that kind of use this gene the most in the brain. Um, like if you actually measure how much of the protein they're making, they make way more than any other cell in the brain. So basically, we've really, really targeted microglia specifically with this gene. But there are plenty of other genes involved in this process um, where if people get mutations in them, they age rapidly. Um, so definitely if you break this process in other cells in some way, um, you can affect them the same way. 
I guess the reverse is that is if you can fix that process, can you slow down aging? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> but that's also an interesting opposite direction of research that this could go in. And I guess that's what the science is about in your case. Yeah, right? yeah. Huh, that's very exciting stuff. We'll yeah. Forward to uh, seeing how all that happens. So how far are you into your program? So I'm in my third year, um, but this is my uh, second year of doing research because my first year we basically did classes. Um, so I have done a bunch of experiments with the cells in a dish just to make sure that we, A, edited what we thought we edited in the genome. Um, because like I said, sometimes it just doesn't work like you expect. And Science. then, yeah. And then B, making sure that this knockout does something because if they, you know, like I said, in a dish, they behave differently than they do in the brain. But we want to make sure that our knockout has done something. So if they were just behaving like any normal not knockout cell, then we would be suspicious that this didn't work. Um, so I basically did enough work in a dish to show that, yeah, they behave a little differently. They're actually angrier. Um, they, uh, if we give them, and this is kind of an artificial experiment because, again, they're in a dish, but we give them amyloid beta and we see how much of it they eat. Um, if we give them that, uh, they do eat more of it, um, but it's not plaques and it's not the brain, so it's not an a direct uh they're just eating it yeah they're just eating it so they're 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 angry and they're trying to eat it so i don't know what will happen in the brain itself um but i've basically done enough work to show that like yes our knockout is affecting them and they when i do experiments on them they've only been alive for like a month and that's enough time for them to become a little dysfunctional so now we've just moved into putting these into mice and this is um, one of the more frustrating parts of my job is we put them into mice and then wait two months for them to age. <laughs> so that's the point that I'm at. Uh, about a month and a, a month and a half ago, I um, put some cells into the mice, and in two weeks, I will have them ready to look at their brains and see if these cells look um, kind of like they're aged. Um, but then I have a longer term experiment that I'm just starting that we have to wait eight months for the mice to oh age. Boy. So it's this is going to be a long process. It's going to take probably about a year to get all of the data for this, um, which makes me cry a little bit inside because I have a very short attention span. <laughs> yeah, here I am complaining about, you know, simulations taking two weeks to finish. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I got to put it on the slowest graphics card and it's going to take two weeks instead of like a few days. And yeah. Here I am complaining. Oh, boy. So, so okay. So, could you then walk us through the day-to-day -day of your of your lab life? Because there sure. seem to be kind of two phases of it. Yeah. So, I, um, yeah, so there's kind of two two things I do, cells in a dish and then cells in mice, which I just started. Um, so cells in a dish, we basically keep them in these little, little wells and we feed them uh, nutrients and a liquid. So the majority of my time is spent changing out that liquid and feeding them um, or doing experiments on them while they're in the dish. So for example, I will feed them um, amyloid beta that's fluorescent so it glows um, either red or green and we can put them um, we have 
basically a microscope inside an incubator and we just leave them in the incubator under the microscope and it will image them like every hour so we can actually get a time-lapse video of them eating the amyloid beta which is pretty cool um and you can because it's glowing you can measure how much is inside the cells um so that's kind of uh the majority of my time is basically changing out the media, putting stuff into it, making sure they're under the microscope, making sure they haven't died. Um, the downside of this is they need to be fed every day or every other day, which means that I don't get weekends or holidays. Um, but I'm also not there all day on weekends, just usually a couple of hours. Um, but that's kind of the downside of working in a dish. Um, <laughs> it's still cognitively taxing to yes. have to go in, even if it's just for a little while. Yeah, yeah, it is because I like you still like you have to measure stuff and um, think about stuff. And then um, I spend some other time. So I have I have some other side projects, but they're usually also cells in a dish. So it's kind of the same um, thing. And then. Um, I also spend time reading papers um, to try and find new things to test them on or new methods to try. Um, I'm coming up on what's called advancement, which means that I have to write this like 60 page document about all of the background that's led to this project, um, which in itself is like a huge undertaking and then I have to write out kind of what my plan is for the next two or three years and how I plan to do it and what what science justification is behind everything I'm doing and how I think it's going to come out so I'm actually doing a lot of prep for that so I'm upping the amount of reading that I'm doing so that I can get that written and um, I, I need to have that written probably by February or March, and it's going to take that long to write it. <laughs> We're recording this in the middle of October, yes. FYI, uh, for the audience. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, no, I'm just just for the audience's yeah. sake. So that's a few months away. Yeah. That is not... It may look like a lot of time for the it's audience, not. but it's not a lot of time <laughs> at all. Just, just wanted the audience to know it's not that much time at all. Yeah. It's a lot of work that needs to get done from here to now, but uh, good, good luck. I wish you the best. Thanks. You'll do well, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how did you get into this line of work? What interested you about neurobiology? So that's a pretty interesting story. Um, so I'm actually a little bit old for a grad student. Um, I'm not like old, old, but I'm older than most grad students come in as. Because uh, after undergrad, um, I got a master's degree in computer science. Um, and most people coming into neuro don't don't get a master's degree before they come in. Um, and I also worked for NASA for five years before deciding to go to grad school. Um, so I was a computer engineer at NASA, and I didn't really like being an engineer. Um, I was basically, I was given projects that were basically like, do this thing. And uh, mostly what I did was write communication software um, for like satellites, which is pretty cool. Um, and something that I had was sitting attached to the ISS, the International Space Station. That's pretty For cool. a while, which is pretty boss. Like, you know, I wrote code that flew in space. Um, but it also got really boring because it was the same, it was the same thing all the time. Like it was never any different. It was just, um, writing 
communication software that pretty much needed to do the same thing. There wasn't the novelty wore off after a while. So I tried to get into doing a little more research at NASA. Um, but the funding situation there is very frustrating. Um, because you have to convince Congress directly. I'm shaking my head. You guys can't, audience can't see this, but I'm, oh my God. Yeah. You have to convince Congress directly that what you're doing is worthwhile. And they often don't see it that way. Um, especially with the recent pushback against climate change. Um, a lot of what we did was things like weather satellites and, um, research about the environment from space. So the funding situation there was really bad. So what ended up happening is that scientists would do all of the work themselves, even if they didn't know how to program, they would just figure it out because they didn't have the funding to bring somebody like me on um, to help them do the programming required to process their data. So I got really, really frustrated with that. And um, I also ran into a block in that I didn't have a PhD and that automatically meant I wasn't trustworthy. And I ran into that issue quite a bit. And I had several grants that I wrote get turned down just because I was not a scientist. Um, scientist, quote unquote. Yeah, scientist, quote unquote. And actually, there was one grant where the scientist on the project actually wrote it, but we put my name on it as the author because I was going to be doing most of the work. And his colleagues denied the grant because I was not a scientist, even though the scientist wrote the grant. They were like, this person clearly doesn't understand the science involved. <laughs> so that was really frustrating. So I was finally like, okay, I if I want to do research, I actually need a PhD. Um, but I was kind of being practical at this point. The funding situation at NASA was not great, and I was going to constantly have to fight to get money. So I was like, I need to, I need to pick something else. Um, yeah, so I'd like to point out uh, you went from a NASA job yeah. to a PhD program yes. because of the funding situation. Yes. The, uh, there's a level of irony in here. It is, but uh, <laughs> Alzheimer's is is big, big bucks. Like, people want to solve this, so the government throws a lot of money at it. Um, so I've always been interested in biology, um, and I kind of decided, like, I'm going to look around and kind of decide what I want to do. So I, while still working at NASA, um, I took a class, a chemistry class at um, a university uh, just to kind of, like, see what I would like, what I wouldn't like. Um, and then I, I kind of decided that I, I wanted to kind of study, like, chemistry and biology together. So I kind of just wandered around for a while, did a lot of soul searching, and I kind of landed on, like, neuroscience I'm like, man, the brain is cool, but it's mysterious, and I want to know how it works. Um, so it was kind of a intersect of like what interests me, and also what I would have to put up the least fight for, for like research money. Um, and I mean, Alzheimer's affects everybody. Like everybody knows someone who has Alzheimer's. So I feel like I'm doing good by studying this disease and. I definitely didn't feel that way writing communication software for satellites. Like, even though, you know, in the long run, it, it was kind of helping. People didn't want that help. <laughs> like, <laughs> like. I'm an energy guy. I, yeah. Yes, I get it. Yeah. Um, God damn, I, I get it. Yeah. Like, so uh, I, I feel like I'm doing something that's both um, 
justifiable to the public and something that I really feel like I'm doing good. Um, and that's definitely not to like downplay people who are doing, you know, the work that you or, or NASA do, but I just kind of felt like I didn't want to fight that fight myself. So, yeah. Interesting side note. Uh, as of recording, I work for a medical devices company now. So, yes, <laughs> I'm not doing energy so much anymore because uh. you're right. It's, uh, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. It, it, you know, uh, the situation. Yeah, you're absolutely, it's, um. Oh, I don't even have words put into it. Put into it because I'm so angry about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I just can't even. All right. Yeah. Give me a, give me a second. Let me drink my tea. Mm-hmm. We're back to the interview. <laughs> Out of curiosity, if you're willing to share, um, how old were you when you went into a PhD program? Um, so I was about to turn thirty. I'm now thirty-two. <laughs> yeah. So I have a little brother who's six years younger than me. So I always think of him as like my little brother, you know, he's all grown up, he's got a job, he's out of college, but he's, you know, he's still my little brother. And um, I went into my PhD program and people there were the same age or younger as him. And I'm like, well, this is trippy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm basically a full PhD's age older than everybody else because I, I took five or seven years out of undergrad before coming here, so... Yeah. That's fine, I think. Yeah. I, um, yeah, nobody cares. And, nobody cares, yeah. But, yeah, it was just kind of... And I, I definitely noticed things like um, some of the slang has changed and, like, so certain social media platforms are now more popular that I just, like... I'm like, what's Vine? I don't know. You know, just things, <laughs> things like that where there's just a clear... There's a very clear divide between when I went to college and when they went to college. But, like, I'm, I'm friends with them. And, you know, there's not a lot... It's more funny, noticeable stuff. It's not like, ho, ho, I'm old. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, but there's definitely... Yeah. It ain't that old. There's definitely some stuff where I'm like, oh, yeah, we didn't have that when I was in college. <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting. So my undergrad took eight years to finish. Okay. Um, and that was because I was bouncing around all sorts of different places. Mm-hmm. I also took a circuitous, circuitous route to get to where I am. Um, I was a literature major for a while. Uh, I was going to get into comparative literature. Then I went to culinary school. I did that for a few years. And then I decided, oh... You know what? Uh, this is really hard, harder than grad school by an order of magnitude. By the way, <laughs> oh my god! I would no. I did both. <laughs> I did both. Cooking for a living is way, way harder. Wow. And uh, I, yeah. Then I went into physics because you know my dad's an engineer. His dad was an engineer. It might even go back another generation back. You know, my dad's always saying, oh, you got to do better than I did, and I did better than my dad did. And I was like, <laughs> all right, then I'm not going to be an engineer. I'm going to be a physicist now, I guess. And that's what I, that was, that's that story. So yeah, like, um, it took a while to get to where I am. So it's, yeah, no shame for all of those other old PhDs out there. Yeah. Old, old, quote, yeah. unquote. Yeah. <laughs> um, so was there, so you did talk, you did mention that, yeah, this was like a, Good idea. Once you're done here, you can get a research gig that's in this field, and it would probably you'd yeah. probably do well yeah. financially. Yeah, because these are problems that do need to be solved. Yes, but aside from that, even knowing that, how much turmoil? Because <laughs> I have to imagine 
going from there and then trying to figure out what you're trying what you, you wanted to do couldn't it's that, that sort of thing's never a painless process yeah i'm not gonna lie i cried a lot <laughs> um it it took about so it took about a year for me to um between deciding to leave nasa and deciding where i wanted to go was about a year-long process and i was miserable that whole time because i knew i was leaving my job i already knew i hated my job okay hated is a strong word i very much disliked what i was doing um and I already knew that, but I I didn't want to leave my job until I knew what I was doing next. So um, that was kind of a very miserable year of my life, um, was trying to figure out, um, do I leave? And I was a civil servant. So it's basically like a tenured professor where you're employed for life. You like there's very little that they can do to get rid of you. Um, they you don't get laid off if they have to make budget cuts, for example. Um, so I had a very cushy government position um, that paid well, and I was like, I don't want this. <laughs> um, and that was a very, very hard decision to make. Do I leave this for the uncertainty of grad school where I get paid next to nothing um, and not know where I'll be in five years again? Um, but I decided that that was what was best for me. And definitely the money thing is hurting a lot. <laughs> um yes but we're making it work <laughs> uh yeah but that was definitely a very a very difficult decision to make um and trying to find something to co- that i wanted to commit to enough to go for a phd was, was difficult yeah <laughs> yeah we all uh did this to ourselves <laughs> yes. yeah this was voluntary <laughs> yeah but you really did this to yourself yeah fucking respect yeah High five. <laughs> Good on you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, So how do you feel about it now, now that you're kind of on the other side of that first fence? Yeah. And now you're in the middle of your PhD in what may be the thickest part of it, which is pre, right before advancement. Yeah. So I have a lot of mixed feelings. Um, So like I said, the money thing is pretty painful. Um. One of the issues is that I have a partner and we live together and he moved across the country with me so I could go to grad school. Um, and the living expenses out here are ridiculous. So we tried. Orange County, by the way. Yeah, Orange County. So we, uh, so we were living in Washington, D.C. So the living expenses out there were ridiculous, but also I was making a lot more money then. So it was okay. Um, so we moved out here and we tried living in grad housing, um, but we were both pretty miserable there because, again, like we had been living in in a nice apartment and then we moved to grad housing and we were like, oh, this is like dorms almost. It's like adult dorms. It is a marginal (laughs) step up from dorms. Yes. Yeah. So it that was another one of the like kind of where it was very clear that they kind of expect you to come from undergrad or close to coming out of undergrad. Um, so that was difficult. So we we moved off campus um, and um, that has made money a lot tighter for us. So that's been kind of a growing pain. Um, I love the research that I'm doing um, and I'm really excited about it, but life tends to keep getting in the way of doing it. Um, so I, I um, 
Yeah. I'm not sure if I should talk about this or not, but I recently became handicapped and walking is painful for me, which means that it's very difficult for me to do my daily tasks. Um, So that has made doing research about 10 times harder, but I'm still expected to perform at the same level as everyone else. Um, So that's been a huge challenge. So I kind of have mixed feelings in that I love the work I'm doing, but it's also taking a very huge toll on me um, physically. So, you know, I think it was a good decision to come here. Um, I think that long term, I will have a much more fulfilling career and that I'll actually be doing stuff that's intellectually stimulating and challenging and also helping people. Um, But right now it's a little rough. So, (laughs) but I'll make it through. (laughs) Yeah. I, I believe that. Yeah. Are you at liberty to say what happened or... Yeah, um, so, like, nothing really happened. It's just the tendons in my feet decided to stop working very well. So, um, now it basically feels like I have tendonitis all the time. Um, and if you've ever had tendonitis from, like, a running injury or something, you'll know it's it's bad and you are not supposed to walk on whatever foot is injured. Except that, for me, it's both feet, so I have to walk on them. And that's that's my fun. <laughs> um, so, have you, have you been getting enough help from like the organizations around campus help you be accommodated or stuff not like that? Really? <laughs> yeah. So, um, Disability Services Center um, tries, but they're much better at things like learning disabilities than physical disabilities, um, and getting to class has been a serious issue for me the entire time I was here. And I actually had to drop a class um, last year because I physically could not get to it. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah, that's been a little rough. Um, And also the Student Health Center is not great. They're basically an urgent care center. They, They don't really deal with chronic issues. So I wasn't taken seriously for about nine months um, while I was like this. Um, And then they finally referred me out to a different doctor. But that took nine months. Like, it was bad. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm struggle busing a little bit. But I'm hoping it, it seems to slowly be getting better. So I'm hoping that by the time I finish my PhD, this will have not been an issue. But yeah, right now it's a little rough. It's, uh, uh, yeah, the, the when it rains, it pours principle, right? Yeah. As if going to grad school wasn't bad enough. Right? Yeah, I feel like, sometimes I feel like I used up all of my good luck getting in, and then <laughs> life was like, okay, here's your payback. <laughs> like. <laughs> We're collecting now. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I feel like. Like, something really, really good happened to me. Like, I got in, and I, I got into the lab that I wanted to work in. And then life was like, just kidding. Bam. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Grad student loans aren't subsidized, after all. That was a I bad joke. On, I don't know. That was, that was a bad joke. Okay. About, I'm like, I don't about, understand your... <laughs> oh, because uh, um, student loans for undergrad... They're subsidized, so you don't accrue right. interest until like six months after. Yeah. 
And in some cases, they'll like extend that period out if you can't find a job or and you're really trying. Yeah. Um, that's how that goes. But grad student loans, because I came in as a master's student, so I know this. Ah, if you okay. take out loans from grad school, those accrue interest immediately. Oh, that's 20 gross. <laughs> goddamn percent or something like that. That's horrible. Yeah, that's just that's how yeah, it is. That's like, just how it is. Yeah. yeah I have from a, the get-go. I have a stipend, so I haven't taken out any loans, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Oh, that's to, bad. Yeah. It was a rough time trying to get that paid off as fast as I could yeah. on a grad student budget. Yeah. But, um, Ouch. Yeah, managed it. Somehow I'm alive. Yeah. I'm eating now, which is good. Yeah. Um, it's, it's healthy, that culinary school helping out. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> you can only go so far with, you know, dried pasta and packets of ketchup. But, yeah. You know, ew, you do. That's a... Yeah, you make do. Ew. You make do. <laughs> oh, it wasn't that bad, but yeah, you make do. Yeah. Struggle is real. Uh, but yes, I absolutely believe that it'll pay off in the end. But yeah, like I said, I'm I'm so excited about the work I'm doing that like I put up with all this crap and um you know, I'm not happy about having to put up with all this crap, but like that's just that's how excited I am is that I will deal with it to get this PhD because I think it's the best the best choice for me. So uh so you had an idea that you wanted to get into this lab. You said this was the lab you wanted to get into. Yeah. Right? So how did you, I guess, when you're doing the course of your research, uh, were you specifically interested in Alzheimer's stuff? Or did that kind of come up as a process of your research into what you wanted to do? Um, that actually came up. So I was kind of looking into like biochemistry at first. And I was kind of looking. So basically, um, to pick grad schools that I wanted to apply for, I looked at faculty pages like hundreds of faculty um to see what they were doing and if their work interested me what school they were at was it a school that both my partner and I could move to for example um where he could get a job so there was a lot of like involved in this and I kind of just ended up gravitating towards neuroscience um after like looking at all these faculty pages and um there's a lot of good neuroscience um, happening at UCI and a lot of focus on Alzheimer's. So I was kind of, when I was looking at labs, you know, I had a couple of people that I would have been happy to work with. But like I said, my PI's method with putting human microglia in the mice just kind of like made my eyes bug out. I was like, this is so cool. So I was like, I want to be in this lab. Like, um, so I was, you know, kind I just kind of like, wound my way into neuroscience and then found this and um thought it was awesome so it's kind of how i decided who i wanted to work with you certainly seem very excited to be where you are yeah that's so aside from that is there anything else in particular that kind of helps you power through in these moments of uh, great peril <laughs> and uh, turmoil um the knowledge that everyone else is suffering just as much as me. <laughs> no, I know uh, that yes. sounds funny. But um, so I, I suffer from imposter syndrome really badly. Like I am constantly like, oh, I haven't done anything compared to this person. Or like, oh, my work isn't that important. Or like, you know, I didn't get anything done last week. I'm failing. You know, just really, I'm, I'm really hard on myself. Yeah, um, and I'm sure that none of our listeners can relate to that. <laughs> I know I can't relate to that 
at all. Yeah. So By the way, I'm lying. Yeah. So I'm really hard on myself, but um, the friends I have um, in my cohort and in my lab, they're all going through the same thing, even though they're all awesome people too. So kind of that helps me a little bit. Like, even if I doubt myself, like everybody else kind of feels the same way and they're all really qualified. So like, by proxy, I must also be qualified, like, you know? Um, but also, I just, I have a very supportive um, cohort and a very, sorry, I hit the mic. Um, I have a very supportive cohort and a very supportive partner, so that helps a lot. Um, There's certainly yeah. a lot of power to commiseration. I was actually going to ask about that, and you kind of hit the nail on the head, that um, maybe that's what it is, that they're qualified. Yeah. And they feel like garbage. Yeah. I'm garbage. Am I also qualified? Yeah. Well, the that? thing is, like, I, we all got into UCI. So, therefore, I must have passed some bar that they all passed to. Um, Those are true, yes. I'm working in the same lab as four other grad students who I think are amazing. So, clearly, I passed some bar that they all passed to, you know? So, like, the minimum standard there, I must have met it somehow. So... You know, if they're all suffering from imposter syndrome, it can't be that bad. Like, that's kind of my um, my feeling to it, I guess. <laughs> that's an interesting thing to point out because I know one of the reasons why I started this business, this podcast, all to get like to begin with was I believed in the power of commiseration. <laughs> Commiserate. It's just, it's just, it's just nice. I didn't really think about it beyond that, and kind of makes me think. Well, it's not. Schadenfreude, where you're actively enjoying the fact that someone is miserable. Right. That's it's not. It's definitely not that. Yeah. It's um much more closer to camaraderie. Yeah. Than that. It's not malicious. It's definitely we're in the trenches and we're relating to the fact that we're in the trenches. Right. Yeah. And I, hmm. No, I've never thought about it that way. That all these people, just like me, also feel like garbage, just like me, and I respect them. Yeah. And that kind of that logic that circles back. Oh, okay. I, am I worthy of respect too now, I guess? As I, you know, scratch my head and ponder that. Yeah. Like, you know, a few neurons misfiring at that idea that that, may, that might be true. Just kind of exploding. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, you know, if everybody feels like garbage. You know, there, there might be people that are like, yeah, I'm awesome. They might be lying. Um, and I definitely have days like that where I'm like, man, I'm awesome. I nailed it. But, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of friends who are pretty outspoken about their imposter syndrome, and it really helps to be like, wait, you have imposter syndrome? Like, but you're amazing. And then I'm like, well, okay, so I can't be that terrible. I'm in the same cohort as you. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I do agree with the idea that we should be vocal about this stuff. Yeah. Especially us introverted folk. Yeah. Where our natural tendency is to just kind of go, oh. Assuming that you're an introverted person. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm an introvert too. I can kind of smell them. So I figured. <laughs> I, just, I just had a just yeah. passing idea that maybe. Um, but anyway, what was I getting at? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's good. So I'm glad that's true. It seems to, the language seems to be changing a little bit. Such yeah. that that's kind of the in thing to do now, which is good to see. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it helps that. to talk about it if you're struggling, like... Um, 
because more often than not, someone else is also in that situation. And it, it just helps to know that you're not. The way you feel, A, isn't real. Um, you're being hard on yourself. And that doesn't make it any less awful. Um, but it helps to know that there's there's outside people who also feel this way. And that uh, it's not as bad as you think. Like, yeah. But of course, it's not a sentiment that stays alive all the time, <laughs> I imagine. No. Um, the past couple of weeks have been particularly hard because um, I had, um, so I have a cat and I have, this cat has many diseases. <laughs> so the past month has just been like one emergency vet visit after another. And I've been so wrapped up in dealing with that, that, um, uh, my research has suffered a little bit because just life is just hitting me in the face. Um, so it's been particularly difficult because I've been unproductive and I feel terrible about that. And I don't, you know, I, I have actually been unproductive, um, but I'm making a lot of effort to remedy that now. Um, but definitely that fueled a lot of my imposter syndrome because it was like, look, you had a bad week. Therefore, all your weeks are bad. Like, <laughs> uh, yes. you know, how you, that's, how you, that's how you science is you yeah. uh, you take one example of one thing that went wrong and generalize. Oh, yes. <laughs> totally. All oh, this one data point. Oh, you know, yeah. Oh yeah. So, so that kind of really fueled it because I was like, I have actual proof that I'm failing and... <laughs> You know, all the good things that I've done before that, you know, don't matter. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a little bit rough because I've, I've been a little distracted and, um, not actually, you know, doing good things the past couple of weeks, but, uh, I'm also very motivated to fix that now. So, um, you know, after this podcast, I'm actually going into the lab. It's a weekend. Um, going into the lab, gonna feed my cells, gonna start a new experiment. So I've got stuff going. So, um, it kind of helped uh, kick me in the ass a little bit too. So, yeah, it 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 does suck to feel that way, but yeah. Sometimes I wonder, because uh, you know uh, our left brains, left halves of the brains are wired to spin the situation of our life into something, uh, and that. And as my left brain does that, I have to wonder, as I think about all the all the nonsense that I had to suffer through myself through grad school, I have to wonder, it's like, oh, is this necessary? Is this healthy for us in the long run? Is this good for us? Like, uh, It's not, <laughs> okay. in my opinion. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's probably fair. Because I go back and forth. I think to myself, because I, well, I know for sure, at least for me, all that lack of sleep, that is not healthy. No. That is not good for you. That damage is permanent. Your brain does not... It's not a muscle. It can't repair itself, yeah. really. If, if that if you lose all that mass, it's, that's gone. Yeah. It ain't coming back. So that sort of damage is not good. You're also basically under constant stress um, until you... Not even just grad school, but if you postdoc, that's also constant stress. Um, uh, I don't know if you've covered postdocing for listeners, but... 
Postdocing is it's basically like the next if you want to, for example, become a professor, um, you would go research in someone else's lab for a couple of years and you'd be a little more independent um, and kind of have your own projects. And it's it's like learning how to be a manager of your own research. Um, so that's constantly stressful, too. Um, so you're basically under constant stress for like you know, five to seven years, um, depending on what you plan to do. And that's not good for you either. Um, for me, that's a trade-off I'm willing to make, um, on my future happiness. Um, so, but yeah, it's, going through grad school is mentally and physically not good for you, I think. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is quite the Faustian covenant, yeah. right? It, it, because like I said, that damage may not get repaired. Yeah. The damage in certain places of the body cannot be repaired. Yeah. But that's what we put up with. Yeah. Um, in hopes that we may have a better future. I mean, I I personally think that for myself, I'm a stronger person than I was before I came into grad school. Yeah. It's not like I was a slouch before. But which is I guess so I have to wonder is this good, is this bad? I suppose the right answer is that eh, just because I turned out, just because any one person turned out the way they did doesn't mean uh, anything is inherently good or bad, yeah. right? I know for sure it is stressful. Yeah. It is bad for your health, <laughs> yes, um, which really should change, I think. There must be a way to, I guess, give people the 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 fortitude to dive into the unknown headfirst without physically beating to death, yeah. death, you know. I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure. Um, not quite peer pressure, but um, there's a lot of pressure in the academic world to work yourself to death. Um, and that's seen as a good thing. Um, it's a very cultural... And it's... Yeah, and it's... Uh, that's not good for anybody. <laughs> um, and if you if you want to be a professor with tenure, um, you work yourself to death to get tenure for another five to seven years. So it basically, you know, 10 to 15 years of your life, you're working yourself to death just to get where you want to be, and that's not a good thing. Um, I don't plan to go that route because that's not for me. <laughs> um. <laughs> I am considering still going that route. Okay, yeah. I, like uh, that's... Throughout the course of this conversation, I'm like, mm, that... mm, maybe mm-hmm. I don't now. <laughs> I don't mean to deter you from something that you would want to do, but yeah, that's just I. I'm not interested in that, and I'm I'm okay doing this for my PhD. But you know, after that, um, I don't I don't want to be in that culture. Um, so yeah, that's kind of part of the problem is that grad students are supposed to be working all the time and you just, you can't, that's not reasonable. Yeah. You can't anyway. <laughs> and this work is already much harder than a lot of other work. Yeah. That one yeah. Might do. So I think honestly, you, know. you would need, you would need a culture shift, um, to put less pressure on that. I think in order to really change that. I wonder, what do you think that might take then? Cause I know, cause a lot of cultures are coming around now. Yeah. I know even um, if you want to be like a professional fighter, you don't beat people to death anymore. Because <laughs> that's, you know, 
That is literally what you would do yeah. to prepare for that. <clears throat> yeah. And that was true for a while, for some time, a while back. But that's not the paradigm anymore, because, you know, people realize, like I said, certain parts of the body, they don't, don't yeah. grow back. They don't, if you damage that, it's damaged forever. Yeah. And it's just, why are we doing that to people? Then I guess, because something with physical violence is visceral, you can see yeah. it. Yeah. Right? But this is like, oh, you're sitting in a chair all day, you're in front of a computer, are you doing any work? I, I'm i talking about myself. You know, yeah, okay. Being a computational <laughs> guy. You know, like, um, oh, you're in front of a computer, being you're in a chair all day. Uh, yeah, right? And um, are you actually working hard? Uh, these are conversations I'd had with myself, by oh, the way. Bummer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, and then, but yeah, the answer is yes. Right, it's, this stuff is mentally taxing. It yeah. stresses you. It sticks with you. And you have no real. There's nothing in the culture itself to. No structure around it to clear out that stress either. Yeah. You just accumulate more and more. Then you know pressure turns. Colds to diamonds, as they say, or whatever. <laughs> That's the nonsense. Yeah, um, but people are squishy, so it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, no, we're yeah. we're a lot of oxygen and hydrogen too. We ain't just carbon. Yeah, after all. Um, so the analogy goes. But what was I getting at? Yeah, no, no, it's garbage. No, yeah. I'm glad we we're having this conversation. I've concluded it's garbage. Yeah, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage. Yeah, I kind of. It's gonna be a slow change, but I kind of hope. I don't know, people. People like to bash on millennials. I guess I'm technically a millennial. Yeah. Um. They're like, oh, millennials don't want to work 80 hour weeks. Well, yeah, we don't. <laughs> yeah. <who laughs> because it's does? bad for you. Like, yeah. so um, I'm kind of hoping that like us and younger people will start kind of banging down that door and be like, hey, this isn't, you know, we shouldn't have to work 80 hours a week. And I don't. I'm actually, I because of my health i take great pains to not overwork myself um but i'm hoping that um as more younger people get into higher positions in science which is gonna take a while because you've got to get through that whole process i'm kind of hoping that they start being like that's not cool we're not doing it and people will complain and be like back in my day i slept in the lab but I'm hoping that people will be like, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's that's years away, I think. Yeah. But. Yeah, wait for those old fogies to retire and die. <laughs> oh, God. Which is unfortunately true. Yeah. Right? It's but yeah, I'm, I'm, kind, happens, of, I'm kind of hoping as, as more people from like my generation and below um, get like tenured positions and, you know, places where they actually have a voice um, that they'll like their grad students they'll be like yeah i know i only expect you to be here you know during normal hours and because i don't want to be here during you right. know you get to clock so, out at five yeah so I, i'm kind of hoping that that change uh happens yeah yeah and i never understood that like it's a good thing to regress backwards yeah also just a side note my pi does not put pressure on us to overwork ourselves he's actually very understanding about that so i'm not speaking about my pi when i when i talk about this i'm just speaking of other grad students that i know so <laughs> uh, as a side note about that um all of the interviewees so far have mentioned more or less the same thing save for a handful um 
And I wonder if that's kind of a... I'm just thinking now. It's like, what what is the uh, bias that I have for interviewees? Like, who gets on the show or not? Spoiler alert, it's just people who was around. Yeah. Because it's still young. I mean, I think that if... So, I, I have a good relationship with my PI. I think if I didn't, I would probably not be on this show because I wouldn't want right. anything I said to affect whether I graduate or not. Because my PI has a final say in that. Um, <laughs> so I think it might be some positive bias. Uh, yeah, for there. people that have the space and opportunity yeah, to come yeah, in. Yeah, because I can talk about my PI because I've got nothing bad to say. You know, it's all good things. Um, but I do know, like, several grad students who just have had bad relationships oh, yeah. with their PIs and they've been miserable. So, yeah. And just to be clear to the audience, we are... Not the norm here, you and I. <laughs> yeah. That can do this stuff. Most don't. Yeah. Yeah. Then even if they think, like, outreach and science is a good idea, we're talking about their pain and misery is a good idea. They, yeah. They're not in any position to. That's just the sad reality of it. Yeah. There's there's one lab um, where the PI does not want um, their students volunteering even. They should be working instead. So the students volunteer in secret. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not a few. that, it's not that like secret, that. but like they just do it anyway. But yeah, there's definitely those that don't want people actually doing anything outside the lab. So I know other horror stories too. People that are there for seven years, like eighteen hour shifts, because yeah. this delicate piece of machinery will go awry. Yeah, which you know, I still don't think that's an excuse. <laughs> just find the people to man it. Yeah, properly. Yeah. Or don't do the shit that you're doing. <laughs> I would certainly hope one day that we can have all sorts of people on this show. I'm not saying that because I'd like to one day quit my day job and just do this all the time. All the time. <laughs> Though I totally would. Cough. <laughs> cough. Cough. But it's, you know, it's um important to just be able to speak freely, I think. Yeah. Is that not the... No freedom of speech and all that is not is that not important i though it does make me wonder if and i and some going back to a comment you made you made a little earlier, I do also agree with you, and I know a lot of other millennials, whatever that means um that would agree with you that yeah, it's probably gonna have to be us to deal with this crap, all the people that think that you know everyone in the past was so great, like you know. Because peasants enjoyed what they do. Yes. Right? Having, <laughs> living in like a small hut, working all the time. It sounds like grad students, actually. <laughs> Peasantry, at least. Are we, the, are we the peasants of the academic world? <laughs> I mean, um, apt. At least we have health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I'll, I'll take it. Yes. But... And then one day in the future, if perhaps we do exist long enough to make it, you know, and we remember all this stuff, and then changes do happen, I wonder if we will be remembered for that. Hope I hope we do. By the generations like that'll precede us. Yeah, I mean, certainly we'll get a lot of hate from. Um, you know, people from the older generation. Oh, those guys don't fuck themselves. You know what? <laughs> they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, but they're not uh, admitting it either. 
But yeah, I, I would hope that it would be a big change. Kind of like how the 40-hour work week was not a thing until, you know, someone yeah. was like, hey, this isn't cool. Um, yeah. They called those bastards lazy bastards, too. Yeah. So I rolled my eyes. I have to narrate this stuff because it's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully. Well. You and I, we know each other because we work on the Lowdown on Science. Yeah. And that is a science radio show on NPR affiliates where students take a recently published paper and turn it into like a 90-second blurb that's kind of funny, easy to understand, and we do that. And then that's our job. We have to write it. And it's hard when you do it the first time. Yeah. Because you have to follow a style and then but you can interject your own style that's what we tell you yeah but then how do you do that then i made a lot of poop jokes in in one of my last scripts like anywhere I'm sorry that i missed it anywhere i could put the word poo it was in there because i was like <laughs> i was like this is my this is my last script for probably six months so we're gonna give it a good send-off so <laughs> <laughs> You have no idea how happy that makes me. I don't know. You told us to make more fart jokes or something. And I was like, well, poop is pretty similar. So we'll go yeah. with that. I, it, that was, it was about koala poop. So okay. it, was, it was relevant. Yeah. That is genuinely makes me happy. Yeah. Fart jokes are funny. Poop is also funny. Yeah. Gross, but funny. Yeah. So I'm glad. But yeah. Makes man. me happy. So I, I love the lowdown on science. Um, and I love writing for it, but man, one of the papers I had to read um, recently for it, it was boring, and I had trouble writing the script because I couldn't read the paper. I was like, "This is a snoozer," but the results were so interesting. Like, but I, yeah, so that's why I like Lowdown is because I suffer so that people can enjoy the results. <laughs> Noticing a trend here. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, don't worry, it's all of us. Yeah. <laughs> we all do that. Yeah. We all suffer for this. Oh. Yeah, but I, I almost abandoned it because I was like, this paper, I, I can't even read it. <laughs> but I made it. What was it about? Um, so we can let people know to watch out for it. Yeah. Cough, cough. So they uh, were looking at T-Rex skulls and trying to figure out what some of the holes in the skulls do. So they make the skull lighter, but they're also, they're not just empty space. They've got stuff in them. Um, so they were kind of looking at like, you know, what's actually in these holes and what are they for? Um, so they did a bunch of studies on like alligators and they found out that it's kind of like an air conditioning unit for the T-Rex. So it was like really interesting results um, based on based on what alligators look like. And, you know, it was kind of fascinating, but the paper was just... <laughs> Just really technical. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. So, okay. One of the things about culture, the academic culture, is that, yeah, it kind of, it promotes that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I know there's still a paper that we're trying to, that um, I'm just trying to write. Because uh, I'd like to do that postdoc thing. Something about bringing untold misery upon myself, as yes. I mentioned. Yes. Um. But, yeah, and then one of the things I'd like to do while I have this temporary gig is to write a third paper. And it's already done. 
Yeah. It's just got to go back and forth for edits and stuff like that. It's just, you know, slower because I'm not in grad school anymore. But anyway, the point is that I got a lot of edits back saying, oh, this language is too non-academic, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, this is my jam, dude. This yeah. Is, this is the point and this is how it should be. You shouldn't put people to, to sleep with your research. Yeah. That's like, not the point. You want people to actually process your paper. Right. Like, <laughs> Why can't you make it engaging? Yeah. Right? I, I, excuse me if it sounds a little too casual. <laughs> not that. He, he is a great advisor. Uh, not not knocking on Adam at all. But I do know he is conscious of that culture. He is very practical about what it takes to get published. Yeah. That actually bothers me. Like, if, if a paper starts... So, you don't you don't exactly tell a story with a paper. You basically just state a bunch of facts in a, in a row. And then, at the end, be like, so this is what they mean. But you don't, you don't really tell a story with it. And that really bothers me. Because I really wish that I could write things like... So, circling back, remember we talked about this. But now we're talking about this. And these two relate. But you don't do that in the middle of the paper. You do that at the end of the paper. Which, if you're bored before you get to the end, you miss that part. <laughs> right. And it's a circling back to things is a yeah. good tactic. We've we've done that in yeah. this podcast a few times. Cough, cough. I should get that checked out probably. Yeah. Um, but it bothers me that we don't do that in, in published academic yeah. papers. And again, to be fair to my advisor, uh, who may or may not be listening, um, is that, yeah, no, I get it. He, he also tells us, too, no, you got to write a narrative with your paper. But at the same time, like, I know he understands what it takes to get published. So I gotta get knocked for this stuff. That's how that goes. Unfortunate. But again, hopefully as people like us also get into those editing positions, maybe that'll change as well. Yeah. I don't know. I wish that we could make academic papers funny. Like... My God! I don't. Yeah. Why can't you do that? <laughs> like, I don't remember the exact wording, but we had a haiku contest um, in our department, and oh, I wrote God, this I like I wrote this really morbidly hilarious haiku about microglia, and I'm like, I wish I could put that in a paper because people would laugh at it, and then they would like my paper. <laughs> but you can't get away with that. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Oh, that makes me so angry. Like, I would write a haiku for every oh. paper I published if oh, we could. Yes. <laughs> Haikus are my jam, too. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah, I I don't know. <laughs> would you mind sharing it with us? I don't remember the wording. Oh, okay, so here's I'm what sorry. we'll do. You send us, uh, you send me uh, with your bio and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, Send me that haiku. We're going to post it. Okay. It's going to be on the website when okay. your episode goes live. Check out her bio. Okay. Uh, www.thisgradlife.com. If you go into her bio, we'll have that haiku for you. Okay. Yeah, I'll grab it. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking love haikus. Yeah. That is my thing. No. Just I. So I. Oh, I have not been keeping up with this habit, but um, I go to uh, Merriam-Webster's Word of the Day, and I write a existentially nihilistic. <laughs> Haiku based on that word. Oh, no. <laughs> and the oh man, I'm so excited about this project. And the 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 ultimate end goal is to train a neural network to write these for me. That's amazing. You need Sounds to do like, that. <laughs> I do. Oh, I need to. I need to. Okay, I need to just sit down. You have to just 
crank out all these haikus, like yeah. a year or two's worth of haikus, just to make that happen. It's doable. Doable. Well, I'm on my lunch break or something, just haiku. Yeah, yeah you pretty much have to do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, if you want to contribute to that, it'd be interesting to see what all the differences are. In terms of this is not going to get included, probably. It'd be interesting to see what all the differences are when it comes to um, different people's styles and stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Haikus. Okay. Wish they could go in papers. <laughs> they, please, let's make this happen, guys. <laughs> Haikus and papers. So, final question. I actually remember this time. Last two interviewees are forgotten. Oops. When you've got a stress eat, what do you like to eat? So, ice cream mm. is my go-to. I used to make ice cream, in fact. There's also a uh, flourless chocolate cake that Urban Plates makes. Ooh, and it's yeah. the best flourless chocolate cake. And it's definitely really good for stress eating, but also really bad for stress eating because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not good for you. Yes. Yeah. As a no. <laughs> but yeah, ice cream is usually my go-to. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for coming. <laughs>